Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. You feeling pretty cocky about your Mets, your New York Mets? It's a baseball team. I, I actually, I am. Uh, they, they, they look. They're not just like good. They have that extra thing where mm. like they're kind of a scary team. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're nasty. Yeah. We're Red nasty. Sox suck. We're yeah, in well, last place. Uh, we have to get to the Dodgers. So I'm hoping that we get a National League Championship Series here in LA, where I can go and be like the drunk Mets fan. Oh, know? that'd be really fun. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you get in a fight. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And we, then you, you look, either way, you don't have to talk about the Jets for another <laughs> yeah, 12 yeah, days, exactly. I think. Yeah. So that's always good for you. That, the wheels have popped off that bus already. <laughs> so, you, you know, usually so. it's not to like week three of the season. The wheels are already off. You know, there's a lot of like trouble in Patriots camp uh, paradise because we lost um, some coaching staff and there's questions about who's calling plays and this and that. I don't know. I, I can't really care about it till it starts. Yeah, I think your problem is that the AFC is just uh, stacked. super stacked. Sorry, uh, out of... A non-football fan world, those yeah. the AFC quarterbacks, you know, Mac Jones is good, but like, you know, yeah, there's, a lot of... there's a lot ahead of him. Okay, back to our, our regular nerdy business here. We are going to start, Ben, with the question, who is winning the war in Ukraine? I think it's an important one and one we will try to answer honestly. We'll also talk through some of the updates uh, about what's happening on the ground, talk about the impact on European energy supplies, some reports about what was in Trump's basement intelligence stash about French President Emmanuel Macron. Mm. Stay tuned for those. Um, a resignation at the Secret Service, floods in Pakistan, Twitter whistleblower, a new set of Pentagon rules designed to prevent civilian casualties. The Iran deal, we're trying to figure out, based on other events in the world, how it's looking there. Feisty French pilots uh, and why it's hard to be a weatherman in an autocracy, weatherman like meteorologists, not like making things go boom. And then Ben, uh, some scary stuff happening right now in Iraq. You did our interview today. What are folks going to hear? Yeah, I talked to uh, a great reporter, Samia Kulab, who's the uh, Associated Press reporter in Baghdad. Um, so I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, but um, the most prominent Shia cleric, Muqtad al-Sadr, who's obviously been a big force in Iraqi politics over the years, announced his resignation, which was a bit of a, a gambit given that his party won the most votes in the last Iraqi election, which was many, many months ago, mm -hmm. and has not been able to form a government. His supporters, who'd already been kind of protesting in the green zone, were activated. Um, there were clashes. Um, dozens of people were killed um, until Sadr essentially called off his supporters. Mm -hmm. um, so she walks us through what happened exactly, why it happened, what the nature of Iraq's political stalemate is, where things might go from here, and just kind of how ordinary Iraqis are thinking about all this, which is, as you imagine, they're pretty frustrated. I, I bet. I bet they're frustrated. I mean, man, Sodder, talk about a name that never won't go away. I interviewed um, Pat Ryan, the new congressman from, from New York, yeah. who was a uh, army intel officer in Iraq in from like 04 to 07. And we kicked off the interview and we were just chatting to annoy Favreau before we actually started recording. And I was like, you want to just do this? on like interest Shia politics. And he's like, honestly, I'd love to. You're the only person who will talk <laughs> yeah, to me yeah. about this stuff. So, Well, the truth is, and, and, and Samia tells me about this, is like Sadr, those of us old enough to remember, um, you know, he really fought the U.S. forces there. Yeah. Um, and his, you know, his supporters were among the most lethal part of the insurgency for time. Now, because he's anti-Iranian, like he's against Iranian influence because he's about like the Iraqi Shia nationalism, he kind of weird bedfellows with the U.S. Like we, hmm. we, we kind of like is a strong word, but uh, Samia talks us through kind of how U.S. officials are in the strange place of sharing some interest with Muqtad al-Sadr, wow. which is a huge shift from, you know, uh, a decade ago. All right. Long. I'm sold on this interview. That yeah. sounds fascinating. Ben, before we get to the rest of our news, we have a long way to go until the midterms, as you know. If you want to get involved... 
as you know, go to votesaveamerica.com. We'll take care of you. We'll get you volunteer opportunities. If you need help staying caffeinated during all that volunteer work or while you're doom scrolling, go to crooked.com slash coffee. We'll take care of you. Dark roast, medium roast, cold brew. Uh, the best part is that a portion of the proceeds from every order go to register her, uh, an organization that's helping register women voters across the country and get them ready to vote. So check it out, crooked.com slash coffee. Okay. Let's go to Ukraine because it does look like Ukraine is about to start or is in the early stages of launching this counteroffensive against Russian troops in southern Ukraine that's been sort of hinted at for a while. There's been a lot of reporting about their desire to push Russian forces back before fall arrives and it becomes you know, basically impossible to move heavy equipment across muddy fields and before Russian forces can fully dig in during the winter to the positions they're currently in. I heard a lot of military experts argue this will be a major challenge for the Ukrainian military because they're not really trained or equipped for this kind of fighting. It's mostly sort of defensive operations that they've worked on so far. And I guess a big question is whether these weeks of HIMARS attacks, those the U.S. long-range rocket systems that we gave the Ukrainians have sufficiently weakened uh, Russian logistics and their ability to resupply their troops. But both sides are sort of in a propaganda war as well. I don't know if you saw this, Ben. The Russians are saying they took out like almost all the HIMARS systems, uh, a bunch of tanks and a bunch of troops. And then the Ukrainians... I think they did an interview with the Washington Post where they said, aha, actually, we're making um, fake HIMARS systems out of wood and just putting them in fields <laughs> and making them. <laughs> that waste would be missiles. awesome. I hope yeah. that's true. Yeah. So it's, it's 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 like hard to know what the truth is, but it does raise the question that I started with, like, who is winning this war? Because we should try to answer that question. So, Ben, last night you flagged this incredibly insightful take <laughs> yeah, from a, yeah, a deep yeah. foreign policy thinker that I think sort of kickstarted this this conversation piece. Let's play that clip. By any actual reality-based measure, Vladimir Putin is not losing the war in Ukraine. He is winning the war in Ukraine. And Joe Biden looks at that and says, we won't stop until you proffer an unconditional surrender. This isn't bad policy. This is nuts. It makes no sense. In fact, it only makes sense if the goal is to completely destroy the West in order to make way for Chinese global dominance. What would be the other explanation for this behavior? <laughs> that ending is obviously yeah. what makes it a Tucker clip. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen like thoughtful emoji you yeah. know, response to that one. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What other possible theory yeah. could it's have been? It's going along and, and like there's like there's some points that are worth debating. And then at the end, it's like Joe Biden is intentionally trying to allow Chinese will dominance. <laughs> it's just, yeah. just incredible. So I don't know. What, what do you think, Ben? I mean, maybe we just sort of make the case for and against. Like, how, how would you argue that Ukraine is is winning the war right now if, if you had to? Yeah, it's it's a you know Tucker uh, in his clip that I'm sure we'll play on Russian propaganda. Uh, it is an interesting question to raise at this point. Um, I guess it depends on, on what you define the Russian war objectives as. And, and the case for Ukraine winning the war is that clearly the initial Russian war objective was to decapitate the Ukrainian government, kind of take conquer Kiev, right. and install one of their goons uh, to run Ukraine and essentially eliminate Ukrainian sovereignty. And what's what's kind of weird is Russia's already lost that war in a way. Like mm -hmm. they they lost against that objective in those initial weeks and months um, when they kind of gave up on Kiev and pulled back to the east. And so I think the case for Ukraine, before we get into the, the Russian side of the things, is that they successfully defended Kiev. They successfully defended their sovereignty. Their government is still standing. Their being resupplied by the West, uh, principally the United States. Um, and you could also argue that Russia's losing 
geopolitically in some ways because NATO is stronger. Finland and Sweden have joined. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, there's more presence in Eastern Europe and along Russia's border than before the war. Um, and obviously, Russia is dealing with the sanctions, although I think you can argue sanctions either way. So that's yeah. the kind of macro case for Ukraine, although the, it doesn't... One thing I'd add is that I think Russia's had an estimated 80,000 casualties, yeah. which is just astounding. And yeah. that that's killed and injured troops, yeah. but that's an enormous number. And I saw... Putin signed a decree that's going to uh, that would increase the size of the Russian military by some uh, 137,000 troops sometime next year. So you could argue that's him playing the long game, or you could argue that the Russians are looking at you know sort of the status quo and thinking we need some more folks to to be able to fight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they clearly do, and they there are reports of them really, you know, pushing to get in. They they, they recruit a lot among like ethnic minorities in Russia or impoverished communities. But there have been even reports of them going to like prisons yeah. and stuff. Yeah, right? Wagner group going to prisons. That's kind of what you do when, when you right. you really need people but don't want to do a full con- conscription draft. For uh, sure. Draft, or get know? like Syrians to come yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Russia winning argument. I mean, I think you could, I mean, point to the fact that they've taken most of the Donbass and southern Ukraine. And, you know, if they're able to cement their positions in southern Ukraine and cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea, I think that would be an enormous strategic victory for Russia. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this is before the war, we kind of talked about two scenarios, one where they tried to kind of take over their conquer the whole country, and another where they tried to create a land bridge to Crimea. People may remember that term. Right. But essentially means that they would consolidate control of the whole Donbass and then take over basically southern Ukraine along the coast um, to give them a bridge to Crimea. And and and. If they went all the way around the south, right, th- through not just like Mariupol, which they have already taken, but through Odessa, which they have not yet uh, taken or even really attacked, they could cut Ukraine off from um, the sea and, and kind of, as we've seen with the food crisis, you know, control what kind of can go in and out of the Ukrainian economy, which would give them enormous leverage. So I think the kind of case for, you know, Russia doing better than you know, uh, Russia winning, I guess, although I hate even saying that. Yeah, it's um, a little reductive. Yeah, it's the a question's reductive. a little reductive, for but, sure. But uh, is it, they may have failed against their maximalist objective, but if the objective is scaled back to the kind of cut Ukraine off, uh, you know, create a land bridge to Crimea, they are holding that territory right now. I mean, mm-hmm. they're holding a big chunk of the Donbass, uh, obviously Mariupol. Um, and um, if they can kind of incrementally consolidate that, territory and at the same time run their play of weakening Western resolve by squeezing energy supplies, creating a horrific winter Mm -hmm. for Europe in terms of the price of gas and inflation and people being cold, um, which could lead to diminished political support for Ukraine. And they've also kind of weathered sanctions. Um, It's taken a hit, but it it doesn't seem to in any way kind of crippled their economy. Um, there's a case that after the initial like defeat, that they actually recovered their footing in some ways, both militarily and with a political and economic strategy that could try to squeeze both Ukraine and the resolve of the West. Uh, and I do think that there was that outpouring of triumphalism in the early months, and that was great that it marshaled support for Ukraine. But I think there was a bit of a premature declaration of victory, yeah. which, by the way, is not good for the Ukrainians either. Because like I, I remember being on... Uh, uh, on MSNBC, you know, where, where I do. And I was on with someone who I, I won't name them, but 
this this came up and he's like, well, Russia's lost the war. Like Russia, it's over. Like they, you know, they can't win. They, I was like, really? It doesn't, it's not over for the, you know, on the front line in Eastern Ukraine, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so I think that's where we have to be cautious that, that our triumphalism and our support for Ukraine doesn't overstate that they're not really still in a very dire circumstance. Yeah. Know? And look, I mean, Ukraine is facing massive, potentially unsustainable casualties as well. I do think this this European energy piece is the part that's really going to start to bite. The Tucker was focused now, on. The Tucker's yeah. focused on. And look, you know, I, I want Ukraine to win resoundingly yeah, for this yeah. to be over. Oh, but yeah. I do think wish casting. There's a lot of wish casting of uh, the results we want on Twitter. And I think that's sort of what you and I respond to. But I mean, on, on this growing energy crisis in Europe, I mean, Last week, Britain's energy regulator announced that gas and electricity bills will nearly double in October, making literally like making heat and lighting your home unaffordable for millions of people. That's the United Kingdom. Yeah. The Bank of England thinks inflation is going to hit 13% in October. There's in, in the UK, there's other higher estimates. In France, they had to cap uh, gas and electricity rates, which is going to cost the government $45 billion. Germany has had to intervene in its energy markets. That's because, again, these European countries are totally reliant on natural gas from Russia. Oil is more fungible. You can make up for lost Russian supply with, you know, gas from other places. But in the long term, like, this is the war Putin is fighting, is this natural gas war. And, you know, I'm just worried about politicians kind of squealing and and hearing their constituents are saying these energy prices are too high. Yeah, I think think that, that this offensive by the Ukrainians is in part because of that. I do too. Right? So I think that, that Zelensky realizes that come you know six months from now, he could be having European politicians trying to negotiate with Putin, um, being less willing to kind mm-hmm. of pour arms into Ukraine, wanting to relax sanctions, yeah. and and I think he wants to show progress um, and 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 hopefully you know take back the most vital piece of new territory that Russia has claimed is in the south there. Um, and so I think that that's fed into his timeline. And I think his argument is a good one to, you know, the European leaders in the U.S. Like, give me these weapons now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, while there's still political will and before Putin's energy play is really bit into politics. You know? Yeah. And again, like a lot of people are united. A lot of countries and leaders are united behind Ukraine. Some are not. I mean, again, yeah. Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the rest of OPEC are talking about cutting oil production. Right. Yeah. Higher gas prices helps Russia pay for the war. Yeah. They're doing this in the face of a global recession. This is such a middle finger to the United States and every other person that wants to see uh, the Ukrainians win this war. It's just like it's unbelievable. I don't think it's getting talked about enough because we all kind of know Mohammed bin Salman's terrible. But the UAE is very much going along with this. Yeah. And I think I mean, you know, we talked last time about how it's like a pretty big FU after the whole fist bump thing. But I think it, it also plays into another part of the Ukraine coverage that I think got over torqued, which is I don't know how many times you heard like that the world has rallied to Ukraine support. It, right. it did not. Yeah, the Chinese the West not. did. You yeah. know, the, the U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, whatever. But like, you know, the the Saudis are taking steps that, that help the Russians. Like you said, anything that dries up the price of oil, um, like other countries are just fence sitting on this thing. India and China are both helping to backfill sanctions by buying more Russian oil. So this is a complicated picture, and, and we should just be le- level set about it. Yeah, and honest. Look, as long as we're uh, terrifying ourselves about energy issues in the region, we should note that the UN sent a team to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant on Monday. 
This is the plant that houses six of Ukraine's 15 functional nuclear reactors, and it's literally been stuck in the middle of a war zone for six months. Uh, Russia, I think, occupies the area around the plant. The Ukrainian staff are working it. They're working nonstop. So the international community, I mean, this is an interesting place where China has actually said something finally. I think the Chinese came out and said, hey, you guys need to do something to like reduce the risk of a Chernobyl-like accident. Um, hopefully this UN team can work something out, but I don't have a lot of confidence because again, Russia views energy as a weapon in war. And this plant before the war was providing yeah. one fifth of Ukraine's electricity. So I'm not sure why they would give that up in any way. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it probably had something to do with, you know, their their approach to this plant had something to do with like trying to take that electricity offline. But the the reality is like, you need that team in there to, to just figure out, okay, are there vulnerabilities? Are there... Are, are there you know potential leaks that you yeah, know could pose a, a risk? Um, but then they have to kind of work work out a plan for how they're going to kind of staff this and secure this plant going forward, right? Because it sounded like the Ukrainian staff was, I don't know the reports are being tortured and you know it, it, it did not seem like how you'd want a nuclear no, plant to horrifying. be, you know. And so I hope that part of what comes out of this is not just like a one off visit, but some kind of game plan here because. Um, you know, the last thing you need is a uh, nuclear leak. Yeah, you know, Meltdown. Like yeah, like sounds a, right. Yeah. Uh, last thing on Russia, uh, right as we were walking in, uh, we learned that Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, died in Moscow. Speaking of Chernobyl. Yeah. 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 So rest in peace. I don't know. It is like an astonishing um, journey from Gorbachev to Putin. Like yeah, you, can, you You know, like you, you had this guy. I mean, I, I, the quick piece I'd say about Mikhail Gorbachev is that like, by choosing to peacefully end the Cold War without doing, I, I mean, I think Putin proves just how miraculous Gorbachev was, right? Because if a Putin-like figure had been sitting in that job in the late 80s, they would have tried to crush uh, dissent in other Soviet republics mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe, and potentially thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could have died. Mikhail Gorbachev's decision to open up the Soviet Union and to peacefully allow the Iron Curtain to fall and Soviet republics to be independent was a very like an historical anom anomaly, you know. And I think we in the U.S., or particularly on the right, kind of make this mistake of myth mythologizing a Ronald Reagan fetishizing Reagan. Yeah, yeah, Ronald Reagan gave a speech and said, "Tear down this wall and up the defense budget." That's all. It and took. everybody came out with their hands up. Well, <laughs> you know what? If Putin had been president of the Soviet Union at that time, that wouldn't have happened, you yeah. know. Um, and it's just very rare in human history that someone is governing a collapsing empire and chooses to just let it collapse. Like, so for that reason, whatever you think about Mikhail Gorbachev, like I think he should go down as an absolutely historic figure who probably saved untold lives. You know? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, switching gears here, a quick story about the Mar-a-Lago raid. We've, I think, covered in some detail all the highly classified stuff that was there. But Ben, if there's anything new out of the affidavit you want to touch on, please do. I I had fun nerding out on all the... Um, absurd acronyms on Monday on PSA. I hadn't said ORCON in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. like no foreign or anything. But anyway, here's the new angle. Um, we know that there was a folder recovered by the FBI marked, quote, Info Re-President of France. Rolling Stone reported that for years, Trump has been bragging that he knew some sort of illicit sexual details about the love life of French President Emmanuel Macron and had learned about it through intelligence. So again, the former president of the United States is sitting around his little golf club talking to his creepy golf buddies who are not in government, never were necessarily, about the French president's sex life and telling them that this is derived from intelligence collection while his basement is filled with 
these documents. It's tempting to laugh at the absurdity. I, I may have. Yeah. But, <laughs> but also, like, I don't know, imagine you're Macron and his wife knowing the shit is out there. I'm sure the, the French press is going nuts on this story. I'm sure the Biden team now has to, like, mop up this mess and deal with some really pissed off French allies. So it's yeah. a real problem. Yeah, I guess the, the problem... The, the the thing we haven't talked enough about, you know, because we've kind of talked about scenarios where, you know, a foreign adversary literally, you know, acquired these documents and endangered sources and methods yeah. or where Trump was like selling it or whatever. But what we didn't focus on enough is, is two pieces, just what the international fallout is already, like without even, you know, knowing the reason for why he took these documents and what they were. And, and there are two things that jumped out to me. One is the French thing, you, you know. As you probably talked about, like the human source, yeah, the uh, HCS. There was H. Code, there's yeah. there's information derived from human intelligence. How would you like to be a human source for the U.S. intelligence community anywhere in the world right now? Because you're thinking, like, you know, people. It can sound like kind of blobby and scoldish when people are like, "We need to protect sources and methods," but that's not just about like whether or not someone's going to figure out who it sources and kill them. It's whether about in the future. Will people trust the United States yeah. to like give us information? And if you think that the information that you might have fed into is like sitting in a basement of Mar-a-Lago, you probably feel less confident being yeah. a U.S. human intelligence source. So, yeah, probably do. So, so that's one fallout that's already happening, right? Like every human source out there is thinking like, well, wait a second, what was in Mar-a-Lago and am I compromised? But then the Macron stuff is like, you know, we went, you know, you were leaving right around the, you know, the, the Snowden stuff happened. Um we, be, when it came out that the U.S. was collecting intelligence on you know, Angela Merkel and other right. European leaders, it was like the biggest crisis in our foreign relations that happened in the Obama administration. I mean- I can imagine. In terms of just like having to repair allied relationships and send teams over and reassure people. And we had to make these reforms to U.S. intelligence so we could say we're not collecting intelligence on the leaders of these allies. She then, must have been so pissed. She was super pissed. And they were friends. She's they, like friends with Obama. Friends with Obama. And like Obama they, didn't even know. They worked it. together super well. Yeah. And Obama didn't even know that, you know, because like what people don't realize is we just kind of pick all this stuff up in a net. Doesn't mean Barack Obama's sitting there reading. You know. Yeah, yeah, right. But like the, um, uh, the point is, though, that one story like this, right, every, not just Macron, I mean, every European leader or sure. foreign leader for that matter, doesn't be European. I just point to that because that, those are the allies, um, has to be sitting there thinking like, well, wait a second, like, is Trump walking around with like whatever the U.S. intelligence community had on me? And and can we trust these people? And this is what we don't like about the Americans. And and, and so, yes, it, it, you know, right in front of you, there's this huge problem with the French who are, who are pretty central. I mean, we were just talking about Ukraine, like there's not a more important country to the Ukraine policy of the United States and France. There's yeah. just not. You know, France, Germany, the UK. And to, to basically have like the you know, president of France sitting there thinking like, did some, some you know, semi-fascist, is that what it is? Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Biden <laughs> called him, yeah. yeah um, to, you know, take, take this secret information about me. It's, it's already, I'm sure, caused problems for U.S. foreign policy. I'm yeah. sure it has too. Also, there was another big report saying another foreign national managed to gain access to Trump at Mar-a-Lago, some 33-year-old woman, strolled into the country club, said she was a member of the Rothschild family, and everyone was like, oh, open your checkbook, come hang with us, yeah. come play golf with Lindsey Graham, come like take a photo with Trump. So, I mean, it seems like this woman might be a Russian spy, but like reason number 
10 million why you probably shouldn't keep uh, classified documents at your country club. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't even exactly like the Americans, like showing up and being like, oh, I'm a Rothschild. I mean, th- th- <laughs> it should be really easy to Google, like one of those famous <laughs> yeah. families in history. Yeah, I mean, there there are people, uh, I assure you, there are people with better tradecraft than that who are trying to get into <laughs> Mar-a-Lago. Um, and you really do wonder, it would actually, you know what, this could be a good television show. Like the- The Rothschilds? No, well, that too, but like the foreign- intelligence efforts at the you know like mm. a fictional mar-a-lago we do it like as a veep chinese and russian spies yeah yeah, yeah and they're just hilariously yeah, stupid yeah, yeah. bumping into each other like get out of my way man but i can you imagine in the last five years how much foreign intelligence penetration there's been in mar-a-lago i can't even fathom constant. how much you know it's constant yeah. um you know look speaking of like secret service and the folks who sort of ostensibly would vet the people coming in out of uh of mar-a-lago or the white house um, I saw that Tony Ornato, who's the assistant director of the United States Secret Service, left the agency on Monday. Remember that uh, former Trump aide Cassidy Hutchinson told the January 6th committee in that primetime hearing that Ornato told her Trump was demanding to be driven to the Capitol on the day of the insurrection, that he lunged at the steering wheel and maybe choked out an agent, the, like lurid scene, right? So according to a piece by uh, Ken Klippenstein in The Intercept, the Department of Homeland Security's inspector general has been trying to line up an interview with Tony Ornato for months. He was pushing them off, being like, I got a vacation coming up, whatever. Presumably about like the insurrection and then all the texts that got magically deleted by the Secret Service because they were I don't know, upgrading their software or some ridiculous lie. Ornato had an interview scheduled for August 31st, but quit just two days before it. So now they won't be able to compel his testimony. Interesting timing, Ben. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, Tony Ornato saying that um, he, you know, was always planning to retire mm-hmm. at this time. Sure, yeah. Tony Ornato does not strike me as a good faith actor. No. <laughs> um, uh, and you will call like after the Cassie Hutchinson testimony, there were these kind of background quotes A lot from of denials. like, oh, you know, this is BS, and Trump didn't choke this person in the car, but. That never led to Tony Ornato testifying, Tony Ornato meeting with the January 6th yeah, committee. That's the one thing I'm not sure about. He, I, he might have met with that committee, but not the inspector. I was like confused yeah, by the yeah. way they talked about this. But I don't know. We never really saw, let, let me just say, we never saw a kind of public no, on the record for sure. statement for sure. from Tony Ornato d- disavowing what a bunch of background people said in Trash right, and Cassie right, Hutchinson. Right. I think it's worth reprising that this guy was uh, the career Secret Service guy, but he was the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Which is insane. That is like the Secret Service, like when you meet these agents, they're like great people to a person. The the sacrifice is incredibly honorable, like literally putting your life on the line. The institution has massive problems. Yeah. And and massive, massive problems they need to work on. It is honestly shocking to let someone leave the agency, become a deputy chief of staff, which is a political job. This isn't like someone at the at the Pentagon going to the the NSC and getting detailed back. Like it's a very political job. That should never have happened. Yeah. It's shocking. It, 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 I mean, it makes you, it, it, what worries me, you know, and you, this connects to the DHS and the d- d- deleted text, um, it feels like there might have been a significant, like, magaification of the oh, Secret totally. Service, right? That, like, Trump kind of likes having guys around him with guns. They, they do kind of work, you know... Part of the problem with Secret Service is like they're under DHS, but they're kind of their own thing, which led to, you know, some problems, right? Like we had mm-hmm. prostitution scandals and just kind of bad behavior scandals. Um, but like the sense of them as this kind of freestanding entity that could do what it wanted to do, if they had a guy in the White House who was a deputy chief of staff, like 
they must have felt like, particularly because people should know that Secret Service is is sprawling and it's not all just presidential detail. There's Secret Service agents doing all kinds of things. But that White House and Trump detail feels like it must have gotten pretty dark, you know. Um, And and this guy was right in the middle of this. He should never have been the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. That makes no sense. I don't think that's ever happened before. Shouldn't happen again. Um, That's an incredibly political job. And um, it's politicizing... The Secret Service and it's breaking down, you know, guardrails that should be there for a reason. And that's why you have things like deleted text on January 6th, right? And totally. So this guy, by all body language, seems to have chosen like loyalty to the crime boss, uh, Trump, over, you know, anything else. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, I just think where there's smoke, there's fire. And like all the texts from January 6th and the days around it got magically deleted. Come on. Yeah. This guy was always planning to resign two days before his uh, uh, conversation with the inspector general, come on. Yeah. I don't buy it. I'm curious what he goes on to do. Like, does he become head of security at Mar-a-Lago? Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to pay off the right people. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. Okay, we have talked recently about the uh, political situation in Pakistan and the back and forth between the current government and the former prime minister. But Pakistan is now also dealing with uh, horrific, massive floods that have killed at least 1,100 people and basically risk shutting down their entire economy. Um, many, many more people are missing or injured. So Prime Minister uh, Shabazz Sharif said this is the worst flooding in Pakistan's history. Something like 15% of the population lives in districts that are currently flooded. I've seen estimates of 33 million people being affected. And by some estimates, well over a million homes have been destroyed or damaged. The IMF had just finalized an economic bailout for Pakistan in July to deal with uh, economic problems that happened before the flood. And now it's estimated that the flood response will cost at least $10 billion, probably way more. So it's a super dire situation for a country that's reeling from, you know, a pandemic, political dysfunction, food and energy prices spiking because of the war in Ukraine. And now this, Pakistan is clearly going to need some like acute short-term aid. But it's also notable, Ben, that Pakistani officials are directly tying these floods to climate change. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. like, hey, Western countries, That's, like you yeah. grew on the back of these emissions and now look what's happened to us. And by the way, this is going to get to everybody if we're not careful and cut emissions faster. So that's that's exactly where I was going to go because, I mean, in the short term, it's just an absolute human catastrophe. You hope that we can get assistance in. Um, you also worry about Pakistan, like this is of a scale on top of all their dysfunction of like just parts of the state fail, you know. Yeah. But I think going forward, what's so terrifying about this is like, why wouldn't this happen again and again and again, you know? And constantly, if you read about climate forecasting, like South Asia, that the subcontinent is in for some of the worst effects yeah. and the Middle East, you know, in terms of extreme weather events, uh, uninhabitable areas like mass migration. And it just makes you just watching this, it makes you think like, well, how is a country like Pakistan going to deal with this if it just keeps happening again and again and again? Mm -hmm. And are people just going to start to leave? Like, and also to your point about them blaming the West, um, is there going to be a push as the effects of climate change build and, and, you know, the biggest effects are going to be felt, I think, in the global South, like for kind of climate reparations mm -hmm. uh, beyond even just the kind of mitigation green climate fund stuff that's already on the table. I, I think so. Like why, you know, if these countries are taking this scale of hit periodically, I, I think you might see blocks of countries coming together and be like, what the hell guys? Like, yeah. you, you know, so I, I think we, this may be a bit of a foreshadowing of like what the next, you know, foreseeable future is like. Yeah. And it's also worth just pointing out that like Europe's in a, in a historic drought, you know, yeah. I mean, there's literally World War II battleships suddenly visible in the bottom of rivers that have been sunk there for, oh, for decades. Oh, man. There's in like the Danube and stuff. You can see like, oh, that's world, like Nazi that's ships. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, it's pretty dire stuff. And like, you know, it's like a constant like slow bore issue in the background that it's sometimes hard to cover, but... That's getting worse, though. Yeah, like you can worse. see the data points of it getting worse. Yeah. You know? um, sticking in the region, a uh, quick note about India, Pakistan's neighbor. So 
Listeners might have seen uh, some of the reports about allegations made by the former Twitter head of security, a guy named Peter Mudge Zatko. You have to have a cool uh, nickname like Mudge if you're a hacker, yeah. I think. So he talked about lack security and privacy standards at Twitter, filed a whistleblower report, I think, with Congress or the SEC or like some agency. Um, one nugget from that report and reporting caught my eye, which is that the Indian government forced Twitter to put a government agent on their payroll. Uh, and this happened during major protests across India. And this agent would have had access to private user data. So I don't know, like, I guess this shouldn't surprise us, given conversations we've had with Rana Ayub and other activists and journalists in India about the threats they face and the ability for the government to target them at all times. But man, what a terrible realization that like all of your communications on Twitter were not actually private if you were, you know, one of these people. Even including like DMs and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it speaks to like, it does seem like the Modi government has taken a particular interest in social media. That's where they and a lot of their supporters and frankly trolls um, go after his opponents and you know, create this cult of personality around Modi. And, and increasingly they've used it to try to target journalists, including, you know, uh, trying to accuse him of crimes for certain tweets. Mm -hmm. I think there's another issue that's interesting, which is we've talked a, a fair amount on the show about like China and how, you know, businesses that want to be in China have to make odious compromises. Mm -hmm. And the NBA obviously yeah. was like the most prominent of that. You know, India is not China. It is not anywhere near as autocratic and there's not, you know, uh, like a genocide taking place. So I'm not drawing an apples to apples comparison. India is a country, though, that is becoming more authoritarian and, and it's manifesting itself in certain sectors. And and yet it's this enormous market, a massive, know, market. massive market. Yeah. And if you're if you're uh, a tech company, if you're a streamer, whatever you are, you want into that market. And I think you're probably going to see, you know, some challenges around that, as with China, where again, not apples to apples. India, don't at me that Indi you know India is obviously m more democratic than than China, but it does feel like you know what Twitter's dealing with is they're probably not the only company that's being kind of squeezed in strange ways. Yeah, I bet you're right. Um, totally different issue, Ben, which is uh, civilian casualties. Uh, last week, the Department of Defense released a plan to overhaul the military's operations in an effort to prevent civilian casualties. These changes are designed to apply to counterterrorism efforts and drone strikes and some of the things we've talked about on the show a lot, as well as you know a broader war fighting efforts and tactics. So if we were to get in a big war with Russia, these you know, plans to limit civilian casualties would apply there too. Um, there's a 36-page report outlining the entire plan that's public. I think you could sort of summarize the gist as creating dedicated positions tasked with protecting civilians and then putting them in parts of the military that actually have real power. Uh, they also talk about more and better systemic training across DOD focused on protecting innocent people creating systems that vet intelligence uh, and targeting data better so you don't have confirmation bias, which is sort of like people seeing, you know, like, oh, finding all the data points that suggest someone's a bad guy versus, you know, and not ignoring all the things that might counter that view. Uh, and then better, doing a better job of communicating with the families of victims uh, when civilian casualties do happen. This plan comes about a year after that horrible drone strike in Kabul that killed a bunch of innocent people there's been lots of reporting and all kinds of news outlets about civilian casualties after two decades of war. I don't really know how to judge the efficacy of the proposal. I think maybe only time will tell. But it is good to see. I mean, there's also just been, I think, a total lack of accountability yeah. in, yes. within DOD yeah. uh, and other parts yes. of the government. 
And, you know, so it's nice, good to see them like lean into this. Lloyd Austin released this report. I guess the risk is the next president could unwind these changes yeah. like Trump did to Obama's changes. But curious if you had any takeaways on just like the policy uh, changes or the, I don't know, years we spent around these issues. No, I think it's, I, look, it's welcome. It's a very good step. You're, you're right that some of these types of protections and protocols were in place at the end of the Obama administration. Trump kind of, you know, yeah, we got to free up the generals. Free up the generals, and you know, everything. Um, and 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 the idea of kind of building in, you, you know, what's good about this approach is kind of embedding within the way that you do business the concern for civilian casualties. Like, and when you know, in in, in the Obama years, I remember when that was done, when systems kind of worked in at every juncture a concern about civilian casualties. It did have an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what remains to be seen, to your point, is the accountability piece. And there are kind of like two examples that have jumped out that we talked about that that I think will be where the rubber hits the road on this policy. You know, one was um, the the drone strike, where um, you know somehow you could get to an end of an investigation of a strike that killed this entire family, um, yeah. and decide that nobody did anything wrong. Like yeah, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Didn't make any sense, you know, and. Um, and and similarly, that investigation into the strike in Syria that the New York Times did, mm-hmm. where they found that like a, a, a horrific number of civilians were killed in a strike that was meant to target ISIS fighters, and the kind of special forces unit that was driving that train ha- seemed like that impunity. Yeah, and they know? just shortcutted yeah, all the short- rules that yeah. were in place to protect people. So it seems like this these changes might get at that dynamic a little bit where like a, a unit out in the field can't just kind of ram through like a massive airstrike without mm-hmm. somebody asking some questions. But uh, the accountability piece, um, uh, you know, you've got to show at some point that there's accountability. Um, and so that's that's where you can't really do anything about the fact that if the next tr- president is Trump, the, the nature of the military chain of command is you're you're you are just changing protocols right, right. And, and you know to to legislate this would be I mean, I don't think that's possible. Yeah, it seems unlikely. Um speaking of military strikes, so we are waiting to see if the US and Iran will get back into the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. You can tell that conservatives are starting to get a little worried because yeah. they're dusting off all their old talking yeah. points from like 2015. It also looks like maybe hardline forces in Iran are getting worried that this might happen because um, they're doing what they can to blow up talks. In mid-August, Iranian-backed militia groups attacked U.S. forces in Syria. The U.S. responded last week in what seemed like a pretty significant military response, like eight F-14 and F-16s bombed a bunch of targets in Syria that I guess were linked to uh, militia groups that get support from the IRGC. I don't know, Ben, obviously, like, Iran's support for these groups is uh, terrible, and their ham-handed assassination attempts against John Bolton and others are why they're not our friends. But I wondered if there's a way to read this sort of increased activity as maybe a sign that the JCPOA is closer to getting done than we thought since, you know, you're seeing these hardline factions in Iran maybe start ramping up their malign shit knowing it might blow up the talks. I don't know. I know. I'm looking for hope here. It does feel like the JCPOA is getting closer at hand that the reporting out of the talks is like they're literally exchanging text here, you know, and and so that means that they're not just kind of proposals of people walking out of the room and they're negotiating text of an agreement, right? Um, and and that that's really good news. Um, and and I, you're right, like you can tell they're getting close because all the same old people are coming out of the woodwork. Uh, same argument. My favorite one was Bibi Netanyahu came out and 
said that it, this is the fault of uh, Lapid and Gantz because when he was there, he stood up to Obama and they didn't stand up to Biden. What Bibi left out is that even though he stood up to Obama, like we did the deal, yeah, like the deal. His, his argument was like, I actually went and I spoke to Congress and these guys didn't. I'm like, yeah, you came and you, you went and spoke to Congress and, you know, we did the deal anyway. Like, um, can you say one quick Sorry, I just had like, to throw a little shade at Like, this would be my request to journalists or covering, you know, oh, critiques for Israel yeah. from Israeli officials or anybody else. Like, just take some time to look at the number of senior Israeli military and intelligence officials who, when they were in government and had to deal with politics, opposed the JCPOA. Yeah. And then when they left, said actually getting out of it was a huge mistake. I think the guy who ran uh, anti-counter-Iran like, intelligence for the Mossad yeah. has said it was a huge mistake pulling out. And it also empowered hardline factions at a time when more moderate forces were ascendant, something that Everyone knew, but you weren't allowed to say on, you know, on Twitter and any arguments about the issue because, you know, right wing uh, uh, commentators in the U.S. refuse to believe that there can be shades of gray when it comes to Iranian politics. That, yeah. Well, I, I think that, like, I actually don't think there's going to be the same level of battle royale about this if the Jake Spear gets done, in part for the reason that you cite, which is that. What do we have today that we didn't have in 2015? Well, we saw what happened when we pulled out of the deal. Evidence, yeah. You know, the evidence of, of here was life with the deal and here was life without. And it's so clearly preferable to be in the deal, right? But then even beyond that, we have, yeah, like all these Israeli security types on the record saying it was a catastrophe for the U.S. to pull out. And you don't have a Netanyahu. You don't have a Republican Congress. The stars, all the same actors are going to light themselves on fire. And, yeah. you know, Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo will, like, fight each other to to be, like, the biggest hawk. And I hope reporters, like, realize that this this story is not starting from zero. Like, there is a, a, a record of There's a, a decade. mountain of evidence. There are people who are right and there are people who are wrong. There are people who are clearly disingenuous. There totally. are people who are habitual liars. Uh, there are people who have grifted off of this. And, you know... Frankly, like even the first time around, um, I think there was a lot of, as you point out, like, like how many stories do you read that quote like Mark Dubovitz as if he's like an independent analyst and like not a like a paid operative, golf funded, trying to destroy person. the JCPOA? Yeah, yeah. You know, like I hope people like don't repeat some of the same um, credulousness in the uh, approach to. Uh, some of these critics, you know. That would be nice. Uh, two quick things before Ben's interview. So one, if you had a rocky flight recently from Geneva to Paris, we might know why. Uh, two Air France pilots reportedly were suspended for physically fighting in the cockpit during a flight right after it had taken off. This came out into a broader investigation into Air France operations. These guys started beating the shit out of each other, I guess, around takeoff, but it didn't impact the rest of the trip, so they landed safely. <laughs> just trying to imagine being on a flight and you just see like one like KO'd pilot like getting dragged back like the movie Airplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't think this has anything to do with Macron uh, information. Probably yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not. But, you know, I mean, would it causation make, correlation. I, I, I will say that like every flying is, is, is so buttoned up post 9-11, uh, you know, for understandable reasons. But like there was like a looser era of air travel, you know. Mm -hmm. Where this is probably a little more common. And fights. Like, you know, yeah, fights, <laughs> people drinking too much. Like, uh, yeah. did you see the movie Flight with uh, Denzel Washington? Great no, movie, absolutely not. Co coked out pilot trying to no. land a plane. Um, but yeah. Didn't like want to see that. You know, if you were going to tell me that, uh, if you were going to like give me four or five options of, of which 
nationality this might have taken place in the the idea that the the French is not that surprising. Like somebody's honor was upset, and yeah, you know, it went from there. Yeah, well, look, we'll hopefully we'll learn more. Uh, also, Ben, apparently it's uh, dangerous to be a meteorologist in Hungary because yes. uh, there the country's two top weather officials were fired after an inaccurate forecast led to the government postponing a fireworks display. It's very Trumpian. They predicted extreme weather. It turned out to be calm. This was some like national holiday about the founding of Hungary. Days later, these guys just got the boot. So I guess, you know, Orban should have just drawn on the weather map, kind yeah. of Trump style. It does feel like another barometer, to use a word, of like the creepiness of Orban. Late that, stage like, autocracy. Yeah, yeah. Like we're, we're getting down to the weather. You know, we start. he started with the judges, then the media, and now we're down to like the weathermen. You it's know? crazy. Um, I mean, look, sometimes you make a call. Sometimes it doesn't work out, you know. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes my weather app, you know. You know, listen, my weather app on my iPhone sucks. Yeah. Um, there's better ones. Even dark there, sky, like sometimes can be a little wrong. I don't yeah. Know. Look, they did their best. Uh, okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Samia Kulab about what's going on in Iraq. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined by Samia Kulab, who is the AP Associated Press reporter in Baghdad, uh, where there's obviously been a lot going on. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's just kind of start. I think people may have seen a range of, uh, you know, uh, dramatic and even confusing images yesterday with protests uh, in the green zone in Baghdad from the supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr, uh, Shia cleric. Um, you know, dramatic images of, of people uh, facing live fire, um, also more joyful images, I guess, of people in swimming pools. W- what happened? How did this come about? Why were these protests uh, taking place and why were they, uh, you know, a little bit more intense than what we've seen recently in, in Iraq? These protests were the product of a very long political crisis that stemmed from the uh, federal elections in October 2021. So it's been over 10 months now that uh, Iraqi political uh, parties, Shia parties primarily, have been um, engaged in a power struggle over who gets to form the next government. that's there have been various episodes in the last few months um, where it seemed like uh, Al Sadr's camp would have the upper hand. Then it went over to the Iran-friendly parties may have the upper hand. Um, things came to a head in June when Al Sadr decided that he had uh, had enough. He was frustrated by the fact that even with his Kurdish and uh, Sunni allies, he could not get enough lawmakers in the parliament to reach uh, the quorum needed in order to move ahead with the political process to form the government. So he, in one of many surprise moves to come, uh, decided that he would withdraw his lawmakers from the parliament. And uh, and they did. They they resigned. Um, After that, he grew increasingly frustrated when his rivals then proceeded to appoint their lawmakers in their place and uh, make plans to uh, form a government without him. Um, And then we came to a point where in July, his his followers 
um, tens of thousands of them stormed the green zone, occupied the parliament. After that, um, they uh, basically came to the point of yesterday, as this has been going on for a while, there's still stalemate. Souther suddenly decided that he would resign from politics. This sent a message, or rather his, his supporters interpreted this as him giving them a free hand to act as they pleased. In the past, Sutter, Sutter's power is derived you know, in two ways. First, he is able to tell his uh, supporters um, to go out on the streets, destabilize Baghdad, bring everything to a standstill, and at the same time, control them and tell them to go home. With his resignation, that latter aspect was taken out. So suddenly you have all of his supporters and no, out on the streets, storming the government palace, and then no leader, no, no voice to then tell them to restrain them, to restrain their aggressive impulses, um, which spawned from decades of uh, marginalization, disenfranchisement, um, and general impoverishment. So they stormed the um, government palace. This prompted the Iraqi uh, forces to react. They saw this as a dangerous escalation. Um, there were several attempts to contain the protesters. At this point, the protesters, Sadr supporters, were not armed. Um, tear gas was fired. Um, there was physical altercations with riot police, security forces, um, and there was at one point gunfire. Uh, which uh, we have learned through our sources, killed at least 30 people um, and wounded uh, a lot more. This prompted a narration from uh, Sadr's armed uh, supporters. His, his, he has a militia group that is aligned with him. And also a lot of his supporters are have, have guns. I mean, that, that's just a reality yeah. in Iraq. Um, they, to avenge these deaths, then went into the green zone with arms and clashed with security forces. We could hear gunfire, mortars um, throughout the night until early, the early hours of this morning. Um, and uh, there was quite a lot of panic, quite a lot of concern that this would then escalate into an, um, protracted street violence. But then, um, Sadr being Sadr, suddenly in a speech um, declared or, or called on his supporters to stop. He said this was not the peaceful protest that he had, he had envisioned. He didn't, um, he said no, no, no matter who is responsible for the violence, essentially this is wrong, withdraw. Um, I want all of you to withdraw from the green zone and Within minutes, literally, that's exactly what they did. So, what next? I mean, so you've got you've got Sadr, his party, his faction does the best in the election, as you said, for many months. Can't form a government. Um, he's kind of you know he's a, a Shia cleric who is not friendly with Iran. Some of the more Iranian friendly Shia parties are obviously blocking him. He can't get that majority with the Sunnis and Kurds. He resorts to these protests. Then he gets frustrated, announces this resignation, yet still has obviously this very intense following, and we still have this political stalemate. I guess to break it into pieces, first Sadr and then some of the other uh, parties, 
what do you have any sense of what his next move is? Is he really retired from politics or is that just kind of a um, a play that he's making in order to try to shake things up? Uh, what are you what are you hearing about what his his and his supporters next move may be? That's the question on everyone's uh, lips in Iraq at the moment. What will happen next? Um, it's not the first time that al-Sadr has resigned. But what comes next is unclear to, to everyone at this stage. I think the dust is still settling from what happened last night. Um, however, um, what al-Sadr has done today is basically shown the Iraqi political elite his Iran-backed rivals, and the rest of Iraq, the power that he wields over the Iraqi street. Um, because right in the moment when we all expected more chaos, violence, and bloodshed, he came in and completely reversed the situation on the ground. And that's very powerful. Yeah. And, that, and, um, um, and so he is indirectly showing everyone what he's capable of and it's a very dangerous message um, as well to his to his rivals um, of what could come next if things don't go in a way that he that that he that aligns with his interests yeah um, and that's sort of the pattern um, that he has adopted ever since the election every if there has always been a point where there is a certain escalation that has come totally out of the blue and surprised everyone. Um, and every time the escalation is, you know, more serious. So the first was him resigning his, his lawmakers from parliament. And that took everyone by surprise. So there's a shock value in, in the decisions he make. And, it's, and in that sense, it's very theatrical. Second is he sends his his followers to the parliament, and those were shocking images. Again, very theatrical of these young kids, these young unemployed kids who have historically been marginalized from the political process, now sitting at the seat of the speaker in parliament. Um, and then he told them to leave the building after a while. Um, and then we saw actual bloodshed, and now suddenly, everyone is gone. Um, so this is the power that he wields. Now, the seeds of the political crisis that um, took shape basically after the election ha have not been resolved. And those are the questions that we are asking ourselves. Um, Sadr has called for early elections. He's called for um, the disillusion of parliament. His rivals in the Iran-backed camp don't necessarily disagree with him on that point. Um, right now in terms of the early elections bit, um, but they disagree over the mechanism at this stage. Uh, Sadr was calling for the judiciary to dissolve the parliament. The judiciary has said that it doesn't have the constitutional right to do that. So it's a question of um, what will, how will his rivals react? Will they hold a parliament session? They still technically have law, the, the majority of lawmakers in the parliament. They haven't dissolved it. Um, will they hold a session? Will um, they, they try to press ahead with government formation? How can they appease someone like Al-Sadr who has been very firm in his resolve that there is no place for Iran-backed parties in his government um, in the past and now is saying, now we have to start from scratch um, with new mm. elections. So it, those are very difficult questions and you know, that's why there's been a stalemate for 10 months. Yeah. They can't. Hide. 
So uh, there may be need to be either some new election to shake things up and reset the deck or um, or the rest of the parties can just try to muscle their way through in this kind of caretaker governance that they have. Right. Um, what is the what is the um, you know, what is the role of the U.S. here? Um, I mean, Iran obviously has its parties that it's backing that are currently you know in the parliament, as you described. Um uh, what, what are you hearing from American officials about what what their what, what their current focus is? On the background, um, and you know, it's such a strange reversal of history. Um, yeah, Sadr was our enemy back in the day, and now I, you know he's against the Iranians. I, yeah, yeah, and that's exactly how it's been. Um, one diplomat told me, um, American diplomat told me that they consider him the lesser evil in all of this. And that's, that's his words. Yeah. The way they see the yeah. region often through the prism, prism of, um, of, you know, Iranian influence. I feel like that's a very, um, that's a very kind of, that's something I've come across quite a lot from um, American officials in Iraq. Um, and so in that sense, they, they do support his, ideas of for a majority government for a, a government where Iran's influence is not as um, you know is not as strong those are those are those are points that the Americans support so in Sadr they see uh, you know they, they do see eye to eye in in, in certain ways um, however it should also be said that um, this is all happening at a time when America when when the US has sort of taken um, well, U.S. policy in Iraq, at least, has shifted a bit. It used to be very focused on, and it still is to a certain extent, on the presence of the coalition, on the anti-ISIS drive. Um, ISIS is still very much present. Um, the coalition sort of um, is providing uh, an advisory role to Iraqi forces in its continued fight against ISIS or ISIS elements. Um but at the same time, I see that the, um, the Americans are also shifting um, their policy priorities in Iraq, um, less on the security side, more on the development side, especially in the environment, especially as climate change has had, um, you know, is starting to have a very dire, a very dire impact in Iraq, especially on the waterfront. Um, so there isn't the kind, maybe the kind of, involvement behind the scenes as you would probably have had um, several years ago. That's not really happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember in, you know, uh, 2015, the U S being intensively involved in, in, in breaking an impasse, but that's, it was at the height of ISIS and the kind of the emergency circumstance. What, what, one last question I wanted to ask you is um, what about ordinary Iraqis? When you get out and you're just talking to, to Iraqis, who've lived through, oh my gosh, I mean, I, I like if you were, you know, a, a 30 year old in Iraq, um, the events that you've lived through just in your life, uh, the, the violence and political twists and turns and occupation and, and competing foreign powers. And, and meanwhile, your life, you know, is just constantly disrupted by these things. Uh, um, what is the, the mood out there uh, when you talk to, to people that maybe aren't like deep into one faction or another, but just want things to work better? I'm so glad you asked me that question because I don't feel like anyone is really asking that. And I think that's very important because it, it we need to understand that Al-Sadr's followers don't represent the majority of 
um, Iraq's views. In reality, you know, he his his supporters stormed parliament. They were maybe in the tens of thousands. And there's uh, over 40 million people who live in Iraq. And most of them are young. Um, uh, and most of them, I mean, look at the election. Less than half the country voted. Less yeah. than half the eligible voters voted. And al-Sadr um, may have won the election in terms of garnering the largest number of seats in the parliament. But when you break those numbers down, he actually won with less than one million votes, uh, which is... Yeah. And that's partially because he was very strategic in how he played the electoral, the new electoral law um, in a way that his rivals perhaps weren't. Um, but what that tells you is there's um, you know, a vast part of Iraqi society that is very disillusioned with the whole political process. Um, and these decisions over government formation are being made completely without their say and completely without their involvement. Yeah. And that's how they feel about it. A lot of Iraqis, while these clashes were going on, were very angry, were very, um, were at home and very fearful of what would happen because they knew that it was completely outside of their, their, their control. Um, it, they see politics as um, a realm where um, certain elites fight for power and resources from the state budget. Um, and that's why government formation is so important because it's basically about cutting the yeah. state pie and, you know, you get this much and you get this much. Well, I want this much. Well, then, you know, we're going to have a stalemate for 10 months. Um, that's what it is. And they know that Iraqis know their country very, very well. Um, and uh, they are, they are very, they're completely divorced from this process and they have no choice but to watch. Yeah. Well, yeah, I uh, must just, uh, I can't imagine how much it must just look like a bunch of power brokers in Baghdad, you know, horse trading with each other backed by different farm powers. It must be immensely frustrating, but thank you so much for, for shedding some light on this. People should follow your reporting. People should, should follow you on Twitter. We'll make a note of how they can do that and uh, really appreciate it and hope, hope we can keep in touch. Oh, me as well. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you again to Samia Kulab for joining the show. Um, apologies to all French people. Yeah. They had a tough run on this show today. They did. the pilots and yeah. the Macron thing. And I, I, yeah, I just feel like I actually even like AUKUS, like I, mm. I love the French. I, I, I feel like, um, Listen, I'm a yeah, you're, Francophile. yeah, you're a Francophile. I mean, um, <laughs> I, uh, so we, we apologize. Um, Our bad. Yeah, we we'll get better leaders. And and we, information already president of France is not something you want to see in the the list of documents anywhere, yeah. anywhere. Um, so thanks to the French. Um, no thanks to Tony Ornato for his service. I guess no, <laughs> like, yeah, Tony. Yeah, we, we, Tony, uh, enjoy. Uh, you know, try, maybe speak to the Inspector General. Yeah, call the IG and enjoy yeah, your private sector yeah. job. Thanks uh, to right. the Mets and Jacob Degrom and Max Scherzer for their high quality pitching yeah 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 all right fine you can get the one yeah Mookie Betts oh sorry about that that's probably tough that nice yeah tough, tough. <laughs> talk to you next week talk to you next week Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production the executive producer is Michael Martinez our producer is Haley Muse Saul Rubin is our associate producer 
It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.